Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CastingAcross.com, where I explore the quarry and quilter of fly fishing. You are listening to episode 170, which I am calling Fly Fishing Accusations. Every 10th episode, I take the opportunity to hop onto email, look at comments on the website, and look at social media chirps and interact with things that are asked and comments that are made. And I haven't gotten any accusations yet. Actually, you know, I'm, I'm sure if I go back into the annals of casting across, I can find some accusations that have been made. Actually, now that I said that, I can think of a couple. But uh, we're going to go just from the stuff from the last month or so. And actually, this this episode, I do have a, a, a different interaction. Uh, I had a handful of, of questions that were posed to me in person at the fly fishing show a couple weeks ago in New Jersey, and I've got one that uh, is pretty good that I think will be beneficial for folks to, to listen to and have some application to to, uh, to your fishing, especially as you're anticipating the season really kicking into gear, maybe organizing your, your gear, and maybe uh, figuring out what you, you might need to add if you want to going um, to take a, a new facet or a new approach uh, into your fly fishing. So that's that's what we're going to do. But a couple of quick uh, administrative things. First of all, uh, you don't have to wait 10 podcast episodes for me to interact with a question or a comment that you have. I'm always happy to uh, respond to an email, Matthew at castingacross.com. If you follow me on Twitter, on, on Facebook, on, on Instagram, feel free to uh, hop on there. I also say I've really kind of backed off on the social media stuff, uh, not because I, I don't enjoy it. It's just it's just not super high priority right now. Um, it, it, it is not writing. It's not podcasting. It's taking pictures of stuff and putting it up there and then you, you just fall down that black hole of scrolling through things so uh, not been super active on there but all the content gets posted onto uh, those channels every every monday wednesday and friday so so i am on there so i will see it if you if you do ask something i do respond that way all right first question is an email and it's an email about a place that i really enjoy i don't spend as much time there as i'd like because it's just a little bit far for a day trip it's certainly doable but it's a place that I, I definitely consider worth worth a trip, especially if you are on the East Coast. So this is what Michael uh, writes. Hope all's well with you. I'm a fan of the podcast and website and finally have a reason to reach out. I'm a novice angler from New Jersey and I'm headed up to Manchester, Vermont in the next few weeks for a weekend trip. Came across an article on the website from 2017 regarding Manchester, so I thought you would be a good resource. Aside from stops at Orvis and the American Museum of Fly Fishing, I'm hoping to get on the water, if even just for an hour or so. My thought is that the bat and kill is the most convenient option. Not knowing what to expect at all, are there easy-to-find public access points, or should I ask around for more specific suggestions? 
My expectations are tempered given the time of year, but as I said, just want to spend a few hours messing around, and given that I'll be traveling with family, my time will be limited. Thanks in advance, Michael. Well, I respond to Michael, but I think that's a, a great question. Um, I am a fan of fishing on the Battenkill. I think it's a great river. It's a historic river. It's a really pretty river. Um, it is not a river where you're going to hop in and catch a dozen trout super fast. Are there going to be days where it's on fire? Absolutely. But in my experience fishing there, um, there's fish to be had, but there's big fish. And I have, I have coaxed them out with streamers. I've coaxed them out with nymphs. I've coaxed them out with dries in different parts of the river. And so that, knowing that, uh, it, it's definitely a, a water worth stopping in. It is not the most productive river in Vermont. Uh, it's not the most productive river in New England by any stretch of the imagination. But b- between its historic significance and its ambiance, I mean, just an awesome part of, of, of Vermont, beautiful part of the country, it's, it's worth going to and it's worth checking out. So uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, Vermont's um, Division of Fisheries, can't think of the name off the top of my head, whatever it is, you know, Google Vermont Fish and Game and that's what will pop up. They have some great resources on their website that have access points, um, which I talked about in an episode, I think just two weeks ago, about how you have some state agencies that have a very robust resource base on their fishing and their hunting websites. And Vermont is a good one. They, they give you access points. They talk about kind of what kind of access is. Is it walk-in access? Is it something where you can drag a kayak or canoe in? And uh, they, they have some really good ones for uh, for the Battenkill, which is important because there is a lot of private land there. But once you get in the water, you're, you're generally good to go. And so I, I sent Michael that way, and I would send you that way. Now, another thing, so that, hold on a second. That is a good thing to know if you really want to plan ahead. But the very first time I went there, I walked into the flagship Orvis store. And uh, I, I've said before, I, I like Orvis. I, I worked for Orvis. This was my first kind of uh, toe in the water in, in uh, working in fly fishing. And so I, I still have a lot of gear, and I'm totally fine with Orvis. I know they are one of the big companies, but as I've talked about uh, numerous times on the podcast, I think there's room in fly fishing, as there is in virtually all other industries, for big companies and small companies. And I think that they have a great symbiotic relationship if, if, uh, if done well. All that to say... Go to the Orvis flagship store. The very first time that I went to Manchester, Vermont, and I wanted to fish the bat and kill, I walked into the flagship Orvis store there, and I walked to the fly fishing department, and there was a person there who knew how to fly fish. Now, sometimes you might get the impression that all the people that work there are only about selling, you know, barber jackets and dog beds. But the people that were working at the fly fishing department, every time that I've been there, are legitimate fly fishers. They're people that I've actually, you know, had rub shoulders with in other contexts, also in fly fishing. And they grabbed the paper map and the pen, and they pointed out where to go. And that is an awesome thing. That's something that I grew, you know, in the, the pre-internet age, that's how I learned where to access rivers. That's how I learned where I should be focusing on fishing in, in certain seasons um, when certain things were happening on the water. So that was a really cool experience, you know, maybe maybe 10 years ago to walk into a fly shop and instead of them trying to sell me a book, instead of them trying to sell me their little laminated pamphlet that they had made up, they pulled out from that counter um, a, a map and using a pen and, and, you know, making marks and making notes, showing me exactly where I should go to fish if I wanted to just get into fish, if I want to try to get big fish, and if I wanted to fish dry flies. 
that's awesome. So I had that experience at the flagship store uh, there there in Manchester. It's an awesome store, all sorts of stuff. They have a sale barn that's off-site that's worth checking out. I mean, that's where you can get good deals. I often find that uh, people do balk at paying full price with the big companies, but they have no reservations about you know getting something for 40% off or 60% off. And so that option is definitely there as well. Um, American Museum of Fly Fishing is definitely a good stop. That's that's a place to go and to just spend a few hours. Um, and it sounds like for, for Michael's situation uh, that that is going to fit in with his, his schedule. And I will say that Manchester is a great kind of family location, a great couples location. There's good food, there's good shopping, there's good hiking, there's good kayaking. Uh, all of those things are there. There's there's lots of, you know, local local food and produce, agritourism, that sort of stuff. Um, it is not as crunchy as other parts of Vermont, if that is something that might be scaring you away. And it's relatively accessible from, you know, Boston and from uh, New York City and even from, uh, you know, Eastern Pennsylvania. So you can, you can get up there and, and really uh, check out a, a very cool part of the country that has fishing in it. And because it's not remote and rugged, you're able to do what Michael suggested, where you're able to get in and, and do the shopping part of it, do the, the history part of it, and do the fishing part of it all within a day and not feel like you're monopolizing your time if you have other things in the agenda or your family's time. So thanks, Michael, for that question. Hopefully you had a good trip. I haven't heard back yet, so hopefully, hopefully uh, you'll let me know. Okay, the second question, and actually the third question here, second, are about gear. All right, um, the second question uh, comes from a couple of people. Actually, just in the last week, I received uh, two emails from people, and I'll, I'll leave them anonymous. Um, but uh, two emails: one asking about fish carvings from a company that I'd written about a few years ago, Sunfish uh, Woodworks, and another one talking about a, a rod holding. Uh, device that um, uh, Selkirk Designs put out that I wrote about. I think that was just uh, last year. And I've had that happen a number of times in the last, whatever, six years of casting across where someone writes and asks me a question that might have been intended for the actual company that makes the product. Um, and so for me, that's kind of cool in the sense that I'm able to say, hey, you know, yeah, they're still around. They're still doing this. And here's how you can get a hold of them. Um, uh, but sometimes I think it's probably just because of search engine optimization that if someone Googles, you know, fly rod holding device, um, I pop up first and maybe just because of a cur cursory and quick read, uh, they think that I'm the actual uh, manufacturer or purveyor of said object um, instead of clicking on the link, which is okay. Honest mistake. I'm sure I've done that before. Um, but that got me thinking, you know, I, I've had people email in the past and say, hey, you know, you wrote a review about this last week. You wrote a review about this last year. Uh, you wrote a re review about this five years ago. What are your thoughts on it? Those are those are great emails. Only because I like that they're taking my word, but they're 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 also being inquisitive. Um, I wouldn't say skeptical, but being inquisitive. Wanted to ask follow-up questions. Maybe asking, I've had people ask, how has that held up? How has that been something that has been useful in this situation? Um, how does it uh, dovetail into other other fishing you do? Which is, is a great, insightful question because I only can fit so much into a, a review. And I can only fit so much into a, a review that is from using something five or six times. Um, something that's using uh, been only used for one season. And here I am four or five years later, and, and I've told people, you know what, it, it's it's a fun rod, 
but it's it hasn't made it into my regular rotation. It's just a little bit softer than I'd like. I use it every once in a while, but uh, if, if that's what you're looking for, then then maybe that's something that you can you can enjoy. Or, you know, uh, it's a cool little gadget, and I used it a lot when I when I first had it. But I find more and more it gets shoved deeper and deeper into my vest, and I'm not using it as much as I I thought I might have. So you might say, why don't you go back and amend those articles or take something down if you've stopped using it? I don't have the time for that. <laughs> Honestly, I don't have the time for that. And it's not like um, Casting Across is the first stop that people go to when they want the authoritative take on all things fly fishing. I am not the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, which for those of you under maybe 30, it's like Wikipedia only printed out and put on a bookshelf. Anyway, I'm not that. Um, I'm, I, I see a lot of my old reviews get a lot of traction online, but it's not such that I feel the burden or responsibility to go back and amend things. Um, if, if, if need be. And there's, there's dead links all over the website. There are uh, products that are no longer in, in rotation. But you know if you read something from uh, 2017 and you click on the link and it doesn't go anywhere, that's, that's not a me problem, to be honest with you. Um, that's, that's, I'm not a full-time webmaster going back through hundreds and hundreds of articles. But if you have a question about something, um, I'm, I'm always happy to, to engage and have that conversation um, because that's that's honestly the purpose of those things. It's not to give you the comprehensive information. It's to get you thinking about it and get and get it started. So, um, but thank you always for those emails. If someone says, uh, you know, hey, you wrote about this. What, what are your thoughts on it today? Or, you know, how can I get in contact with a person? I'm, I'm having a hard time um, finding them online. I'm happy to do that. All right. So first thing was Manchester. Second thing was old gear reviews. Thirdly, I was at the fly fishing show. And I was walking around, and and uh, somebody, a vendor, introduced somebody uh, to to me, and uh, I think his name is John. And uh, he listened to the podcast a few times, and and we got talking. The vendor knows me, listens to the podcast. The guy uh, had listened to the podcast, read the website, and said, you know, hey, you know, you talked about a few times, and you've written about um, run trail running uh, and fly fishing, and uh, you know, what what are just a couple things that I I should get now. Of course, I have a couple articles on trail running, and I have a couple articles on uh, just packing ultralight, um, and I think I have a podcast on it as, as well, um, but I have no problem kind of rehashing those things. And I would say the most important thing, if you are going to try to move quickly, either it's at a brisk pace just walking or at uh, jogging, is a pack that fits well, a pack that is snug. And there's two main components with this, and, and you can find the, find fly fishing packs that accomplish this. But more often than not, it's going to be um, ultralight backpacking packs, like day packs, or it's going to be um, bulkier hydration packs. And actually, I would say that would be my very first stop if you are going to be looking for a pack to to move quickly into the woods to find to find water. There are going to be fly fishing packs that do a good job. There are going to be ultralight day packs that do a good job, but a bulkier hydration pack so a pack that is primarily built for keeping water on your back but then also has enough room for those essentials is probably where i would start and so you could find that you know rei or ems or ll bean or just online all over the place and actually my my recommendation today at the end of the podcast is going to be a good uh, a good spot also but why is that one they're going to be form-fitting to your back they're not going to move around on you I detest it when any of my bags and packs move around on me. That's why I like Vitavu slings. I think they they of all the sling packs I've ever worn, they they are the most form fitting, and some of that has to do with their their design and how they're ergonomically built. 
but the, the same thing is said of, of a pack that you're wearing as you are moving quickly because um, with, with fly fishing gear, you're going to have a couple of bulky items that are going to cause that weight to move around. So there is a good way and a bad way to pack a backpack for walking long distances. And, and as you go faster and as you add terrain, then it becomes even more integral. And so that has to do with the distribution of weight, um, you know, being low and closer to your back, um, not a lot of weight up at the top, not a lot of weight away from your back. But with fly fishing gear, you can't always accomplish that. If you have a rod tube, um, whenever possible, I like to have the rod in a sock and not in a tube. Um, you know, if you have wading boots, if, if you don't have a pair of shoes that can do double duty um, in the water and on the trail, uh, then that's going to create issues. So having a pack that starts flush with your back that you're able to not cinch so tight that it's going to cause a problem on your shoulders or around your waist, but if there's a waist strap, if there's a chest uh, snap, and if those those straps can can pull that pack nice and close to your back without causing discomfort, then that is one aspect of it. The other aspect of it um, is if there are built-in um, compression straps in that back. So these are going to be those straps that you can, uh, you know, nylon straps probably, that you can ratchet down and they're going to hold things tightly. So if you have a pack that's that's a little bit bigger than you need and you don't fill it up all the way, by pulling those straps tight, it's going to hold things against the back of your pack, uh, the back of your pack, which is up against your back. That's very uh, easy to say and hopefully uh, easier to understand. But it's basically all about creating a tighter, compact package that is going to be close to your back because as you move quickly, you don't want that thing bouncing around. Maybe that doesn't bother you, uh, but I know it drives me nuts and it also, I believe, is going to lead to chafing and uh, and you know rashes and things like that because you got it's moving more and as you perspire, then that is going to get exacerbated and nobody wants that. So I would say that that was the very first thing that I would look at. I, I think I would rather fish with gear that can't break down as small and I would rather uh, use just my normal fly fishing stuff if I could find a way to have it close to my back and have it nice and tight. Um, I think that that is a great inexpensive way to get moving into the woods quicker is having a bag that, uh, that, 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 that works better for you, if that makes sense. Uh, beyond that, uh, shoes. It's all about the shoes. So I am uh, fishing out of the Astral TR1 mesh, and that is a very capable light trail runner and wet wading shoe. It is a light, they advertise it as a light hiking uh, water shoe. Um, I think it is a, a great wet wading shoe, but you can also do some light uh, trail running in it. Uh, if I'm going to be going further, so I'd use that for maybe like one-ish miles, maybe one to two miles. I'm sure this summer I'll push a little bit further. Um, but if you are going to go further than that, so like when I'm, you know, five, six miles in, then I do have a, a devoted pair of trail running shoes. My current ones are some um, uh, New Balance uh, trail running shoes because I, where I live, I'm right by a New Balance factory. So that's where I get most of my running shoes. Um, and then I have, I, I would just strap those uh, Astral um, TR1 meshes on the back of my pack because they don't weigh anything and they dry off super quick. Um, but that's because I have a pack that's able to lash these these shoes that have zero bulk, um, both in weight and in in volume, uh, to the back of my pack using like bungee cords. And when I run, they're not going to be bouncing around. And when I'm waiting, they're not going to be causing me to be you know all all out of balance. If you Aren't like again. If you aren't planning on going super far, 
then you can find a pair of shoes or even a pair of heavy duty sandals that can do double duty. But that would be the second thing I would look at is that your footwear is really going to make a big difference. You don't want to be inconvenienced or unsafe while you are running slash jogging or while you're waiting. So um, that's something I, I think I'll explore again as we get closer to the, the season starting up um, because you're never going to find a perfect pair of shoes for every situation. Uh, and to be honest with you, you're never going to have two pairs of shoes that are going to be perfect for every situation, but that's okay. Um, we, we can't be so persnickety and, and so high maintenance that we need that to enjoy ourselves. It's all about finding the things that work most often. My favorite pairs of wading boots and my favorite pairs of running shoes um, work under most situations. And there's a few times where we say, oh, this is a little bit clunky for this situation, a little bit too light for that situation, not enough ventilation for this. But you know what? That's not what dominates my thinking and uh, doesn't uh, detract from my enjoyment of using those things, but more importantly, my enjoyment fishing. So John, that was fun to have that conversation. And I was able to elaborate a little bit more when I'm sitting in front of a microphone as opposed to in a busy convention hall. So hopefully you're listening to this as well. All right. So three quick questions. Um, Manchester, Vermont old gear reviews and uh, priorities when when pa- preparing for and packing for uh, fly fishing quickly and lightly as you're moving into the woods. If you have questions, if you have comments, if you, again, have accusations, Matthew at castingacross.com, I'd be happy to interact with those uh, as soon as I get them. Um, a little busy these days, but that being said, still like to get back to everybody as soon as I can. This week on castingacross.com, the first article is a Rusty Flybox article, Rusty Flybox line. So this one's kind of neat because it is an article, it is a video, YouTube video that I made, and a podcast all about Flyline. Um, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Flyline is the most underrepresented, undersung, and unappreciated aspect of terminal fly fishing gear get good stuff. It doesn't cost that much more and it will make you a better caster and it will make your both in distance, accuracy, and in presentation. So go check that out, Rusty Flybox line, and you will hear my thoughts on those things. And then Wednesday's article was was a good one. I enjoyed writing it. It was called Not Quite a Fishing Room. Not Quite a Fishing Room. So my grandfather, when I was growing up, had a gun room and I spent a lot of time in there just sitting, looking around, messing with stuff, having him show me things. And it was a gun room. It was not super organized, although I'm sure he knew where everything was. Uh, He had a fan in it, so he was able to smoke his pipe. Um, It smelled like gun oil as well. It was an awesome place for a kid that was interested in that kind of stuff, but more importantly, interested in hanging out with the men. So I write about what my fishing room is like, or what it isn't like, I should say, and and share some daydreams. But uh, it's a fun little uh, trip down memory lane, as well as an exploration of uh, what may be one day, but what certainly is working today. This week's recommendation on the podcast is Sierra. So uh, Sierra is owned by the TJ Maxx company, and it is a closeout uh, outdoor gear store. So I, they have a new one that opened up uh, near me, and so my son and I went just a couple days ago, and we walked around, and if you are looking for, well, first and foremost, if you're looking for like random stuff, this is a good place to go. But secondly, if you're looking for quality outdoor clothing, this is an awesome stop. Uh, where, where you can go and find things that are incredibly inexpensive. This is where you will go to find a good pair of underweighter pants. This will be a good place for you to go to find wicking shirts 
and uh, shells for for your fishing and for your hunting and for your hiking. Um, I'm sure that this is not news to anybody, but uh, if, if you do most of your shopping online or if you do most of your shopping at department stores, uh, I'm sure there's people that do that still, uh, this is a great alternative where you're going to find brand name stuff and then probably just store name stuff, you know, it's just kind of generic, but probably made in the exact same places as some of the big name stuff for incredibly cheap prices. I mean, all of the shorts I saw were between like seven and 12 bucks. All of the, um, you know, the wicking pants were between uh, 10 and $12. Awesome selection. I, I showed great restraint, only bought a pair of shoes, uh, but uh, we'll definitely be heading back there as I look at my uh, my spring and summer fishing gear and clothing and get rid of some stuff that's a little bit weather-worn. So uh, I'll put a link to their website on the show notes of this page on Casting Cross, and they have a website with lots of stuff on it, but I would say if you have one locally, if you have a Sierra, Sierra uh, locally, that you head in there and, and you check out stuff and touch things, and you know for, for probably under 50 bucks, you can get a couple of good pieces of gear. Thanks for listening to the Casting Cross Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.